Well, let's get this party started. So this is Matins. I'm Father Timothy Matkin. This is uh, number 32. Uh, we're continuing, um, and I think ending today, because this has gone on long enough. The uh, reading from the book Rome's Tribute to Anglican Orders by uh, Montague. Montague forgot the last last name. Montague Butler. Uh, before we go into that, though, let us pray. Today is Whit Tuesday. In uh, the old prayer books, there's a special collect and uh, lessons for uh, Monday and Tuesday of the octave of Pentecost, and then it cuts off, which is kind of strange. Uh, Wednesday uh, might make sense because that's an ember day, so you'd have Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday taken care of, but uh, no Thursday provided. I don't know why. Perhaps a liturgical historian can clue us in. But uh, let us pray that collect for Whit Tuesday. Grant, we beseech thee, merciful God, that thy church, being gathered together in unity by thy Holy Spirit, may manifest thy power among all peoples to the glory of thy name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, and a blessed Pentecost to all of you, and... Uh, uh, glad you tuned in. If you want to communicate with me, you can do so by uh, commenting down below on uh, YouTube. Please give us a like and uh, subscribe and share. Uh, rate and review us if you're listening on um, Spotify or Apple Podcast. We appreciate that very much. Um, and if you want to email me, you can email me at frmatkin at priest.com. And uh, some of you have, and I appreciate that very much. It's always nice to interact with those of you out there. So we're picking up with uh, Rome's Tribute to Anglican Orders uh, in section or chapter 7. And this is uh, another, another part where it, where it gets good. So basically to recap, um, what we have here is a, a catalog from uh, I think 1892 or so, a little bit before Apostolic Curia, a catalog of all the positive assessments of Anglican orders from a Roman Catholic point of view. So, section 7. The very Reverend Pierre Arnaud, and I, again, I apologize in advance for all the mispronunciations of French things. Uh, the Rev very Reverend Pierre Arnaud uh, wrote to the Bishop of uh, Castoria, no less emphatically, and his testimony is chiefly interesting as embracing the actual period about which some modern controversialists have made the most contention. And this is, uh, he is, I guess, on the faculty of uh, the Sorbonne. So the, he is a part of the theological faculty of one of the most prestigious um, institutions in all of the Western Church. He says, quote, The fact that the bishops in Queen Elizabeth's time were consecrated by true bishops appears to me undeniable. The very Reverend Pierre Dupin, another doctor of the Sorbonne. In 1717, Father Dupin and three other doctors of the Sorbonne expressed to Archbishop Wake their wish for a union of the Church of France with the Church of England, quote, as the most effectual means to unite all the Western churches, end quote. He declared that the, the theological faculty at Paris would be in harmony with such an object, in other words, they would agree, and that the accomplishment thereof belonged to God. 
The object met with the approval of His Eminence, Cardinal de Noay, Archbishop of Paris. In addressing the Anglican Archbishop, Father Dupin adopted the tone of one writing to a Catholic prelate and signed one of his letters, quote, Your Son in Christ. Respecting the work by Bishop Forbes of Edinburgh, entitled Considerations Modestae et Pacificae Controversiarium, uh, Dupin expressed himself thus to his grace, quote, The bishop seems to be of the same mind as you and I, for the whole subject of the work turns on this, to show that the controversies between us may be easily settled, if only the fairer theologians are heard on both sides, if dictation is avoided, and we are led not by party spirit, but by love seeking the truth. The whole town, reported Dr. Osman Bovier, uh, chaplain to the British Embassy in Paris, to the Archbishop, quote, rings of a union, and may openly declare that they wish it. On October 22, 1717, the same wrote to his grace, quote, they, Dupin and de Gardine, are extremely satisfied with the account of the succession of the English bishops, for before they were in error about it, that is, they thought the other way. So they were convinced, their minds were changed when they investigated the, the issue. The same year, Dupin wrote to the Archbishop, quote, I was extremely pleased with what you were so good as to write to me so eloquently and accurately about the election and consecration of the bishops in England. It does not seem to me to differ much from the customs which flourished in the time of Charlemagne, as is clear from the capitulars of this and the following emperors, and the formulae of the Marculfus, I don't know what that is, and I cannot sufficiently praise the precautions which you use to prevent any unworthy person from stealing into the episcopate. Would that bishops were proved in the same way everywhere before they were consecrated. Dupin drew up a commonatorium approving 23 of the English articles as they stand, I presume that means articles of religion, and admitting the remainder with explanations. I tried to find this, uh, but I couldn't find it. So maybe if somebody else um, is able to... Oh, and by the way, we're on page 34, if you want to go to the link and read along with me. The Reverend Pierre de Gardin, uh, another doctor of the Sorbonne, in an oration to the other Sorbonne doctors, this learned father recommended union with the English and the Roman, between the English and the Roman churches. In December of 1718, he addressed himself as follows to Dr. Wake, the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury, quote, You can hardly think, most illustrious prelate, with what joy it filled us, that we learned at last from your most learned letter that the consecration of the English bishops in due succession from the first foundation to the Reformation is supported by the testimony of public documents so that the enemies of ecclesiastical union have no ground on this head, at least, to disturb the communion of minds and of religion now to be renewed among Christians. And that was one of the um, tactics or arguments of those who opposed um, Anglican ordinations is to say that, uh, well, there's no documentation uh, to support any kind of uh, literal succession. The very Reverend Pierre, uh, Pierre, Pierre, 
Francois Le Carrara, or something like that, canon of the Augustinian Abbey of St. Genevieve near Paris, professor of theology and custodian of the Abbey Library, he declared that, quote, attachment to Catholic unity obliged him to yield to the truth respecting Anglican orders, and he published a learned volume in their defense. The following are some of his utterances as to his unqualified belief in their validity. Quote, the advantages which would arise from the reunion of the Church of England with us ought naturally to incline us to favor whatever tends to prove the validity of their ministry. It will be easy to decide what ought to be the thought of the practice of many bishops who reordained the English, and I think men will easily be convinced by the proofs we have produced that this custom is contrary to all the received maxims of the Church in the matter of reordinations, and that it is founded only upon chimerical facts, upon opinions that are abandoned, and upon doubts that have no foundation. And then a, a separate quote. As to the doubt, it can have no place so long as there are proofs so certain that the ordination was performed by bishops duly consecrated, that all that all was there observed which could be essential to the sacrament. And this, when it appears to me, has been so demonstrated as to leave no reply. When Morinus was at Rome in 1639, he founded a congregation established to examine the validity of the Greek ordination. It was therefore doubted of all that time, and ought we have given weight to such a doubt against these Anglican ordinations, of which no reasonable divine can question the validity. A certain ordination makes a certain bishop, and a man is truly a bishop when he is one with certainty. But the ordination in question is certain, for every ordination is certain when it includes what is essential to ordination, that is to say, the imposition of hands, prayer, and the consecrator, but such is the English ordination, as has been shown at great length throughout this treatise, and as all those who will be able to convince themselves who will take the trouble to investigate the facts. It is, of course, false, again, that they who do not acknowledge in their priests the power of offering such a sacrifice, the Eucharist, and their ordination does not confer it, for this power is included in that which is given to them to administer the sacraments and to perform all the functions attached to the priesthood of our Savior, a thing which will appear certain to all who will examine the matter without prejudice. We cannot hesitate, then, as to the reception of their orders, unless at least we have two weights and two measures in the judgment we pass on things of religion. There is no decree of the Church that declares the English ordinations no. This was, of course, before Apostolic Curie. As for the reasons which support the ordinations, as they are all founded on evident facts and authentic monuments, that is, records, and as the opposite re reasonings have no other foundation than mere possibilities in the air, and suspicions which aim at the annihilation of the most solemn records, that is, probably uh, with the idea that these historical records are forgeries or something like that. It does not appear that any comparison can be made between the two, and doubts which have for their foundation 
mere presumptions and prejudices can never decide as to the validity or invalidity of a sacrament when these prejudices or these presumptions are destroyed by proofs which are convincing to all those who seek less to dispute them than to inform themselves. The establishing of the English ordinations turns entirely to the advantage of the Catholic Church. The acknowledgment of their validity facilitates us to the means of our reunion with the English, and there is nothing for which we wish with greater ardor. Though separated from us, they are still our brethren, nor is anything foreign to us of that which is marked with the seal of Jesus Christ. And by the way, here he really hits on um, the fundamental underlying reason for apostolic curia, which is the establishment of a foreign hierarchy in England. Um, and so the, the desire to not reconcile the Church of England, but rather to replace it. So if you recognize that it's um, still there, still um, reconcilable, then um, you undercut basically your new hierarchy. The Reverend Pierre Dardin, on the 1st of October, 1721, gave not merely his approbation, but also high praise to the foregoing sentiments expressed by Pierre Corrère, thereby acknowledging that they embody the expression of his own convictions. Uh, the Reverend Pierre, everybody has the name Pierre, <laughs> de Fontaine, Inspector of Divinity Books in the Royal Library of France, um, editor of the journal De Scavance, gave public testimony to his favorable view of Anglican orders. The Reverend Pierre Caldegues, presenter of the Church of Montferrand, in a letter dated November 25th, 1724, reiterated the convictions of Monsignor Bosset in relation to the subject, and at the same time spoke very highly of the proofs brought forward in Pierre Carrère's dis dissertation. The Reverend Pierre <laughs> de Molette, author of the Novelle Literaris, uh, was also strongly on the same side, speaking of the criticism of opposition to Anglican orders as sound and judicious, while he characterized the reasons in their favor as overwhelming in their force and as being pushed to demonstration. That all of these are named Pierre. <laughs> the Reverend Pierre de Villers, uh, on June 14, 1726, issued an approbation of Pierre Carrère's dissertation in defense of the English succession and priesthood. He's listed as the censor, so I, ha I guess he's the, uh, the guy who um, investigates these things for legitimacy and signs off on it. The Reverend Pierre Jean, Jean Le Gris of Rouen, in a letter to a friend in France in 1796, wrote as follows, respecting the Church of England, her services, and her ministry, quote, Though the sacred sacrifice is not offered as frequently as in the Roman Catholic Church, yet the services and rites of the English Church are like our own, and, as it is said, bear a great likeness to the services and rites of the old Church before any changes were made. The churches are frequently open and breathe a spirit of admirable doctrine and refined devotion. Baptism, confirmation without anointing, marriage, the sacrament of communion, are all given according to venerable forms, very simple, by clergy whose promotion to sacred orders, with care and preparation, is made by a manner perfectly in harmony with the respective customs of the ancient church. And the clergy who claim to have, 
and who I see no reason whatever to doubt, possess the same character as pastors and priests, as their spiritual forefathers, have always received and retain until now the confidence and affection of their people. There is not a little to be learnt from the observing of the manner in which the Church of England is respected and reverenced, nor can the most anxious critic discover the absence of anything that is essential to the efficacy of the same within their flocks. Uh, chapter or section 8. The very Reverend T. H. Canon Escort of Birmingham, a distinguished Roman Catholic priest and controversialist, in quoting a resolution of the Sacred Congregation of the Holy Office um, in 1704, that's now the doctrine of the faith, Father Estcourt adds these words, quote, Such is this most important decision, and it will be seen at once that nothing could be more favorable to the Anglican side of the question, for it establishes the principle that the words Ashipe Spiritum Sanctum, or receive the Holy Spirit, are sufficient as a form of ordination to the priesthood. It renders nugatory the argument raised by Talbot and Lugar that the distinctive order must be named in the form. It makes it clear that even if the Anglican form of the diaconate is invalid, this need not prevent the priesthood being validly conferred. It removed any doubt whether the uncanonical mode of altering the Anglican form would of itself have made it invalid, and it puts aside as irrelevant any questions whether the alteration was made by the church or by the secular power. And again, he writes, quote, a sacrament conferred with the correct matter and form by a heretic or even an atheist is valid if he intends to do that right which the church does, and not specially the Roman church, but the church in confuso, even though he might not believe in the reality of the sacrament. So basically the un underlying idea that uh, intention is, is, a, is a matter of intending to do what the church does. Uh, in, a, in the plainest generic sense, rather than uh, intending to uh, act it out for a play for the entertainment of uh, um, playgoers. Canon Estcourt, moreover, moreover, states that it is impossible to doubt that Parker was consecrated. Uh, Matthew Parker, Archbishop of Canterbury, under Elizabeth. And with regard to the nag's head argument set forth by some to disparage the Anglican priesthood and succession, he says, quote, It is very unfortunate that the nag's head story was ever seriously put forward, for it is so absurd on the face of it that it has led to the suspicion of Roman Catholic theologians not being sincere in the, in the objections they make to Anglican orders. The nag's head fable was this um, story about Matthew Parker being consecrated in a bar. Um, basically, somebody took a Bible and just plopped it on his head and said, there, you're the new archbishop, or whatever. Uh, Reverend John Linegard is accounted as one of the first historians of modern times. He studied at Douay and was for 40 years priest in charge of the Roman Catholic Church of St. Mary's Hornby, Lancaster. A cardinal's hat is said to have been offered to him, which he declined. The testimony of this learned writer is particularly valuable in answer to the false allegation, a, that Barlow, one of the Episcopal consecrators of Dr. Parker, was no bishop, 
and b that the consecration was conducted in mock fashion in a beer house. We may quote the following, quote, The clergy's head, Elizabeth, resolved to place as metropolitan, both through respect to the memory of her mother and in reward of his own merit, Dr. Matthew Parker, formerly chaplain to Anne Boleyn, in obedience to the um, French word that I don't know, <laughs> he was chosen by a portion of the chapter, the majority part refusing to attend, but four months were, su were suffered to elapse between his election and his entrance on the Archiepiscopal Office. So that is that um, not all of the electors were present, but they left time for uh, objections to surface. Four of the commissioners, Barlow, the deprived Bishop of Bath, and Hodgkins, once suffragan of Bedford, who had both been consecrated according to the Catholic pontifical, and Scory, the deprived Bishop of Chichester, and Coverdale, the deprived Bishop of Exeter, who had both been consecrated according to the Reformed Ordinal, proceeded to confirm Parker, and then to consecrate him, after the form adopted toward the close of the reign of Edward VI. So you had four consecrators, two under the old uh, rites, and two under the new uh, prayer book ordinal. Dr. Lindegard disowns the nag heads, nag's head fable. In the body of his work, he makes no allusion to it when relating Dr. Matthew Parker's consecration. But in a supplementary note, the following passage occurs. Quote, Before I conclude this note, I thought perhaps to mention a story which was once the subject of acrimonious controversy between the divines of the two communions. It was said that the kitchen in Scory, with, uh, with Parker and other bishops-elect, met in a tavern called the Nags Head, that kitchen on account of, kitchen is a name, by the way, on account of a prohibition by Bonner refused to consecrate them, and that Scory, therefore ordering them to kneel down, placed the Bible on the head of each, and told them to rise up bishops. Of this tale, concerning which so much has been written, I can find no trace in any author or document of the reign of Elizabeth. Also, there's an, another uh, note down below. The theory that Barlow, one of the consecrators of Archbishop Parker, was not himself a bishop, was never even raised by any Roman Catholic until 1616, 47 years after the former prelate's death and 80 years after his accession to the See of St. David's. Certain ill-informed persons ventured to call and question the testimony given by Dr. Lingard, whereupon he wrote at great length in reply, a few definite statements as to his personal belief, founded on historical proofs as to the reality of Dr. Parker's consecration, are subjoined. Quote, I have asserted that Archbishop Parker was consecrated on the 17th of December, 1559. I owe it to myself to prove to your readers the truth of my statement and the utter futility of any objection which can be brought against it. In my judgment, the comparison of these facts with those that preceded the 17th of December forms so strong a case that I should not hesitate to pronounce in favor of the consecration. If even all direct and positive evidence respecting it had perished, but there exists such evidence in abundance. Now to this mass of evidence, direct and indirect, what does your correspondent oppose? I am not aware of any open denial of the facts till about fifty years afterward, 
when the tale of the foolery supposed to have been played at Nags Head was published. With them, certain opponents of Anglican orders, the great error of which I have been guilty is that I state Barlow to have been a Catholic bishop in the reign of Henry VIII, whereas they are positive that he never received Episcopal consecration at all. Dr. Lindegard then cites the most convincing proofs of Barlow's Episcopal character and adds, Is there any positive proof that he was no bishop? None in the world. Why should we doubt the consecration of Barlow, and not that of Gardner? I fear that the only reason is this. Gardner did not consecrate Parker, but Barlow did. The fact, however, is that Parker was consecrated on the next Sunday, but one by the four commissioners in the chapel of Lambeth, and according to the ordinal of Edward VI. This appears from the archiepiscopal register, from Parker's diary, from the antiquates, and from the indisputable facts which I mentioned in my former communication. What can be opposed to these authorities? Any direct testimony? No. But that the passages in the register, the diary, the printed books, are fabrications. The charge of forgery is one easily made, and therefore requires proof to support it. It is the last refuge of the obstinate and dishonest, and therefore, if it be approved, recoils with double force against those who make it. After much testimony and proof of his position, Dr. Lindegard states that his opinion was the result of long, patient investigation. And he adds, I have yet to learn what reason there may be to doubt its truth or regret its adoption. Again, he says, your correspondents are suspicious of all Protestant testimony. Let them take, then, the testimony of a Catholic. He proceeds to quote certain records of Sander, the contemporary Roman Catholic historian, and states that the contemporary testimony, adverse to the truth of English orders, quote, never had existence, except in the imagination of writers, who, having adopted the fable of the nag's head consecrations, found themselves compelled to adopt other fables in order to bolster up the first. If I am in error, nothing can be more easily easy than to expose that error. The discussion, however, has led me to the discovery of additional proofs. Father Lingard died at Hornby, July 13, 1851, and was buried at Ushaw uh, College near the city of Durham. Uh, we'll go on to talk about a few more. I may skip around a little bit here uh, when we get to the end. Uh, section or chapter 9. Reverend Sir Harry Trorlani, uh, to whom we have already made some passing reference, received Anglican orders and many years afterward seceded to the Church of Rome. He insisted that his English ordination had been a valid one and then he need not, therefore, be reordained as a priest. With the full knowledge and consent of the authorities, he said Mass frequently, and performed this and other sacerdotal functions for the space of nearly thirty years in England, France, and Italy. It is said that he never omitted the daily repetition of the divine office of the breviary. Later in life, however, to satisfy the scruples of certain co-religionists co in Rome, Father Trelawney consented to receive conditional reordination, although he fully convinced his ordainer, Cardinal Odishal, 
Otis Galici, that he was a true priest prior to the performance of the ceremony in 1830. Father Trulani contented to, contended to the day of his death that English orders are good and valid. So he, he, he practiced in the Church of Rome for 30 years um, before someone kind of caught up with him and forced him to be conditionally ordained. The very Reverend John Adam Moeller, Dean of Wartsburg and late Professor of Theology at the University of Munich, draws a distinction between the Anglican Church and the Presbyterian system, and shows that in the former we find the divine institution of episcopacy asserted. Yet further, in drawing comparison between the Anglican and Lutheran bodies, he frankly admits that the Church of England possesses a Catholic hierarchy. The Reverend Arthur Wollaston Hutton formerly of the Oratory of St. Philip Neri, granted that the expressed intention of the English ordinal to continue the previously existing orders is, quote, a distinct witness to the general good intention with which the Anglican ordinal was devised. That's also the, the oddest thing about um, the attack on Anglican orders is that, uh, well, the, uh, the intention is faulty. Well, the intention is expressed in the preface to the ordination rite. Um, in fact, there's no other rite in all of history, uh, as far as I'm aware, where you have basically the intention spelled out, literally, right on there on the page. And uh, how is that dealt with? It's ignored. Um, Hutton added his testimony, which, however, uh, was reluctantly given, and whatever his personal misconception as therein shown respecting Anglican teaching, appears to be distinctively in favor of the actual validity of Anglican orders from the standpoint that the correct matter and form are used. Uh, he's, he wrote, quote, A Catholic may readily grant that the prayer book ordinal, as it now stands, if not as it stood in Queen Elizabeth's days, employs matter and form in themselves, so far sufficiently definitive, and that it if it had come down from a remote antiquity in a community that had continuously preserved through an undeveloped form the true Catholic doctrine on the sacrament of holy order and on the sacrifice of the Mass, there would probably have been no difficulty in obtaining from Rome a decision favorable to the validity of the orders conferred by its use. So in other words, if we'd had the same facts in a different situation, nobody would hesitate for a moment. It will be seen that Father Hutton here firstly suggests that the ordinal has not come down from a remote antiquity and yet readily grants that it has retained sufficiently definitive matter and form, and secondly supposes that the doctrine of the English Church has hindered the general and decisive acceptance of Anglican orders by the Roman Church. In other words, it's not so much the, the historical details, the theological details, it's the we don't really want those Anglicans hanging around. Um, let's see, and he points out, uh, it has, however, been the custom of the papal communion to admit the validity of orders conferred with the correct matter and form in bodies of Christians, which it has yet declared to be both heretical and schismatical. Now let's skip around a little bit here. The acceptance of heretical tenets is not regarded as a bar to the possibility of orders, so long as the consecrator or ordainer 
has the general intention to do what the church does in the matter. The Reverend W. Humphrey, this is page 44, Oblate of the St. Charles Borromeo. When it is considered that no church authority in any true sense can exist without a continuity of holy orders, the following expressions of Father Humphrey furnish a strong presumption that he believes the ordinations of the English church to be at least valid. I do not defend the position, uh, the position of the Roman church in England. I do not think it defensible in so much as I as I do not believe it to be true that we, talking about the Roman Catholics in England, the nonconformists, that we represent the pre-Reformation Church of England in the sense of our being a continuation of that body. They, the Church of England, represent it. But in the manner I have mentioned, we are a new mission, straight from Rome, the center, source, and ever-living wellspring of Christianity. The Reverend Henry Nuxom Oxen, Oxenham was ordained in the English Church in 1854 and seceded to the Church of Rome in 1857. After his reception into the Papal Communion, he continued to be a frequent attendant at Anglican services and was also seen to be at meetings in furtherance of the reunion of Christendom. Uh, in 1869, he wrote to Dr. F.G. Lee, quote, I have no hesitation in saying that the evidence in favor of the Anglican succession has always appeared to me morally conclusive. Um, It's only confirmed in me the very decided conviction that no case can be made out against the validity of Anglican orders, which would not tend by inevitable consequence to shake the validity of every ordination. Uh, let's look at just a couple of things in section 10, chapter 10. Uh, Mr. Ambrose L.M.P. Delis of Gardenden Park and Grace Dewar Manor, Lichester, wrote in 1844 at considerable length on the subject of English orders to the Reverend Dr. F.G. Lee. After stating that he had been challenged to disprove their validity, he adds, as I had never disputed their validity, and on the contrary, was inclined to admit it. I first intended to decline the challenge, but the provincial of the Dominicans, the late Father John Wood, urging me to undertake the discussion in print, I said to him that I was not the man to do it, for I saw no reason to dispute the validity of Anglican orders. However, after some discussion, I agreed to write on the subject, if the provincial would furnish me with all the arguments in favor of his view, that is, to prove the invalidity of Anglican orders. Uh, accordingly, I wrote several letters which were published in the Leicester Journal, Journal, and in which the whole anti-Anglican argument was most elaborately put forward. But these letters were so convincingly answered by the Anglican clergyman who had challenged me that I felt constrained, as an honest man, publicly to acknowledge that he had beaten me hollow, and as I verily believed, proved his point. Mr. Going to the next page, Mr. Augustus Welby Pugin wrote a work entitled Church and State, or Christian Liberty, which met with the approval of the late Cardinal Newman. Writing to Mr. E.W. Pugin, respecting his father's book, he said, It has given me great pleasure to read it. It is an exposition of great and most important principles, and is written in a frank, straightforward, forcible style. 
The following are some of the passages in Mr. Pugin's book which received so high regard. Quote, it is lamentable to consider the amount of ignorance that prevails respecting the real system of the Church of England. Not even not only among the English Roman Catholic body, but among persons who profess to be members of its communion. And then going down a little bit, it is indeed remarkable that in no official act is the Church of England committed to the term Protestant. It does not occur in the liturgy, or in any authoritative office, nor in the articles or canons. And in the bidding prayer she prays for the whole estate of Christ's Catholic Church, and especially for that part of it established in this dominion language which can only admit of one interpretation. Um, and then it notes on page 49, shortly before his death, Mr. Pugin expressed his disgust at the circulation of the foolish naghead's fable about Anglican ordinations, for he said, slander is a poor substitute for argument. Further testimony needly, needs scarcely be cited in evidence of the nature of the convictions of learned Roman Catholics respecting England's ancient church. Her bishops have received their commission in unbroken succession from the holy apostles and retained the old sees as the recognized rightful occupants. Her priests administer the bread of life as in ages past from the same altars. It is true that of later years the Church of Italy has set up an alien hierarchy on English soil, but it is in no way recognized by the Catholic communion of the country that is, of England. The prelates subject in England to a foreign pontiff simply represent the modern leaders of the body of Roman nonconformists, which was first formed in the year 1570. With the most earnest desire to take a charitable view of the Roman system in England, it is impossible, in common honesty, to regard it otherwise than as intrusive. From the standpoint of the ecumenical councils of the undivided church, we should, indeed, have to use a stricter and harsher term and declare the body of the Italian church in England to be schismatical. What is the true history of the division which took place between the Roman and Greek communions? Not till the beginning of the 13th century did events occur of such importance as to lead to a lasting schism and rooted hostility between East and West. The conquest of Constantinople, the spoilation and desecration of the Greek churches, the erection of the Latin Empire, above all, the part which Innocent III took throughout by supporting these acts of violence, with the whole weight of his authority and power, and openly forwarding the subjection and Latinization of the, England, uh, of the Eastern Church. These are the deeds which dug the chasm that has not been bridged over to this day. Then a swarm of Latin priests pressed greedily into the East, and though ignorant of the very language of the country, opposed the national clergy with the pride and tyranny of conquerors. The bishops and priests of the country were compelled to leave it. Otherwise, their churches and revenues were robbed, or they themselves forced to adopt the Latin ritual. It was a drama of insolent tyranny and harsh oppression, such as the Christian world has never before witnessed. The popes and their legates set up altar against altar, placed ignorant Italians and Frenchmen as patriarchs and bishops over the Greeks, and even transplanted the Inquisition with uh, its auto de, de fe onto the Greek soil. Thirteen Greek priests were burnt in Cyprus. 
and we look in vain for any spiritual good or profit that accrued to the Eastern Christians from this long-enduring invasion of the Western Church. The fact remains that the bishops of the Italian Church can have no canonical exercise of power in other countries within the diocese of bishops who already possess jurisdiction. Two bodies of Christians cannot independently represent the true Catholic Church of a country, and as far as Catholics in England are concerned, it is inconceivable that so blessed an object as corporate unity can ever be attained unless Englishmen who have allied themselves to a foreign ecclesiastical power return to the obedience of the Holy Anglican Church. And why should not so happy a state of things be desired? Nay, more, why should not its consummation be devoutly prayed for? Even the fact that we still see the representatives of a foreign ecclesiastical body setting up altar against altar and ministry against ministry should not discourage us. Naught is impossible with him whose beloved son prayed for unity in his church. Our plain duty is to add our supplications to his, to pray in loving charity for the return of our separated brethren in England, and vigorously to check all doubt or despair of their own bishops, leading them eventually to submission to their true patriarch in the ancient Catholic See of Canterbury. Well, that does it for the book. There's a little um, uh, appendix on um, Greek uh, matters, but uh, we'll skip over that. Well, basically, uh, that wraps it up for this. Next time, I think we will have a few additional words about uh, GAFCON. Uh, so we will see you then. God bless. Thank you.